0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. I am so excited to be with you today. Um, as we talk about, our title this this week is Normal is Not Healthy. And I want to say you're just getting me today. Brittany's kind of out on a sabbatical, taking a little time for herself. So um, hopefully you won't get bored with just hearing my voice. Hopefully this topic is engaging enough. Um, it is for me. The catalyst of this is I just feel like more and more we're seeing disease as the norm. When you look at the stats of all the things, I mean, it seems to be very normal and very common, um, but that doesn't mean it's healthy. And we know that, but our patients don't always know that. There's things that our patients just think, oh yeah, everybody has that or everybody does that. That's normal. And I feel like we have a role to play in helping our patients realize that those things aren't necessarily healthy and helping them see their way to health on those fronts. So, I wanted to start off with just kind of looking up the definition of common and normal. Um, Common has been defined as occurring, found, prevalent, done often, or shared. And normal is defined as usual, typical, and expected. On the flip side, healthy is defined as the state of being free of illness or injury. And I think you'd all agree we're seeing some very unhealthy situations that have become very common or or almost normalized in our world. And I don't know about you, but it leaves me feeling like I'm trying to paddle upstream on the daily as uh, I evaluate my patients and do my best to lead them to health. And so my goal today is not to solve all of these issues. I would never pretend that I could even put a dent in them. But really to give us some good talking points to help educate patients, to help them pursue addressing root cause issues, and stop masking the symptoms, which we know can have a compounding effect and drive disease. All of these issues are extremely common for a large part of our patient population, and we have more influence than we sometimes realize. Our patients typically see us more than any other provider, and they really have come to trust us as we've built relationships with them. We know this. We have patients confiding in us all sorts of things that we don't often really want to know. We have patients that really look to us to, to help them along the way. And we know that the secret that they typically trust us more than they trust our doctors, no offense to the doctors. But how many times have they looked to us when the doctor's talking as if to say, like, hey, are are you driving with this? Or even asked us after they leave the room, do you agree with this? Would you do this? What do you think of this? And I'm not saying that we are better or that we know more because we don't. I'm just saying that our unique relationship has created a trust that not all providers get to have. So I just want to step into this, saying that I think we must steward this gift well and leverage it for the benefits of health and wellness for our patients. So my first thing, and I I feel like I hear this all the time, sadly in some of my own family members, um, taking Advil frequently or almost daily. You know, when you when you're going through your patients' medical histories and they have Advil and you know, listed as a medication. And I'm like, how often are you taking that? I'm like, well, a couple times a week, you know, if I have a headache or, you know, I just wake up and my joints feel a little sore or, you know, that sort of thing. But I feel like it's almost become very normal to just pop an Advil whenever you feel like you've got an issue. Um, And I want to talk about that um, because there was a study from Cleveland Clinic that estimates that NSAIDs, which we know are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which Advil fits into this category, um, used to treat pain and inflammation, are responsible for 107,000 hospitalizations and 15,600 deaths a year in the United States. When used incorrectly, especially chronically, negative negative effects can include things like diarrhea, gastrointestinal problems, including bleeding, heart attack, heart failure, high blood pressure, kidney damage, liver toxicity, low sodium levels, nausea, stroke, ulcers, upset stomach. There can be negative interactions with other medications that they might be taking, Um, things like blood thinners, heart medications, um, immunosuppressive medications, seizure medications, and other NSAIDs. And I guess the question lies in, how much is too much? And, you know, unless your healthcare provider tells you to do so, you shouldn't take ibuprofen every day. It's recommended to only take over the counter for pain for up to 10 days or for fever for up to three days. Um, and if you notice your pain or fever getting worse or not going away, you should stop taking it and contact your healthcare provider. Um, taking it longer than recommended period of time without a healthcare provider's okay can be dangerous. So that's something I think we need to address because I'm hearing this from a lot of people that it almost It almost feels like because it's an over-the-counter product that people don't necessarily see it as a medication, and I think we need to speak into that for people, that if there's something that is chronically going on, again, that Advil, um, that Tylenol, whatever that is they're taking, and Advil tends to be worse than Tylenol as far as the liver effects on the liver, but... you know, again, we need to express to our patients this is a mask for the problem. It's a band aid, it's not a solution. We want to encourage them to go talk to their physicians about chronic issues that are going on. Another thing I see really commonly is a lot of patients are taking antacids daily. And we know that heartburn is very common. Um, many things can trigger heartburn. And the most common cause is food that's acidic or high in fat. Um, citrus fruits, tomatoes, onions, chocolate, coffee, cheese, peppermint, or spicy foods or large meals, especially eating them later in the evening, can also be the root of this distress. Um, Other sources of heartburn include aspirin or ibuprofen, which we just talked about. So a lot of times these do go hand in hand where you'll see patients are taking both of these together, Um, as well as some sedatives and blood pressure medications, tobacco and cigarettes and vape, is known to affect the LES, which is the lower esophageal sphincter function too. So smoking relaxes the muscle, which can result in heartburn. Um, Sleep apnea is a big part of having um, reflux, gut dysbiosis, GERD, poor GI motility. Being overweight or pregnant can also trigger heartburn due to added pressure on the abdomen and stomach. Um, There was a doctor out of... um, Cleveland Clinic, who noted that it's important to monitor your symptoms closely and discuss them with your doctor because they could actually indicate a more serious condition, such as heart disease, hiatal hernia, or esophageal cancer. And we know that um, chronic reflux can lead to esophageal cancer and hiatal hernias. So these are, again, one of those things that just over the counter, you can buy, you know, Prevacid and Tums and all of those, And again, now they're very fruit flavored and, you know, chewy gummies like candies. And I think people lose sight of the fact that these are medications and that these are to give us relief, but not necessarily address the issues. So when we see patients that are telling us, yeah, I'm I'm taking, you know, Tums, you know, a couple a day. That needs to be a deeper conversation of, you know, what's leading to that? You know, what is diet looking like? Is there is there any chance that there's some sleep apnea going on? Have you been diagnosed with GERD? You know, having some deeper conversations. These are things that should start prompting us to ask some questions. I'm moving on to taking sleep aids nightly. And, you know, I know there is a large portion of the population that struggles with sleep. And we've done a podcast on sleep and how important sleep is in, in our, in our function, in our health, in our mental state. Um, so sleep is really, really important. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that struggle to get proper and adequate sleep and they tend to recall, tend to um, rely on sleep aids for that. And that can be a dangerous thing. Uh, Dr. Salima Patel, who is a sleep medicine specialist at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, offered some advice to people who may rely on over-the-counter sleep aids for weeks or months at a time. Most over-the-counter sleep aids have diphehydramine, doxylamine, melatonin, valerian, or chamomile as the active ingredients. Each of these carries its own risks and benefits. Over-the-counter sleep aids can be broken down generally into two categories, medications and dietary supplements. Both are known to be relatively safe when taken as recommended. Some common examples of over-the-counter sleep aids with these active ingredients include Tylenol PM, NITOL, Sominex, Zequil, and Unisom. These drugs are antihistamines, which you also find in Benadryl and Zyrtec and other common allergy medications. Antihistamines block certain chemicals in your brain, helping you relax and making you feel sedated. Tolerance to these active ingredients can be developed rather quickly, which tempts users to increase dosage beyond the recommended level. Side effects associated with sleep aid medications include dry mouth, which obviously we don't want in our dental patients, urinary retention, blurred vision, confusion, and constipation. Dr. Patel added the use of these medications is especially concerning in older or elderly individuals as they may may be at a higher risk for confusion, dizziness, and falls. Also, many decongestants containing pseudophedrine, Sudafed, and allergy medications ending in D, as in Claritin D, can be dangerous to people with heart conditions and those on heart medication. The active ingredient constricts blood vessels and could put additional stress on the heart, especially when used long term. So these are just conversations again that we want to have with our patients. Maybe dig into why are they struggling with sleep, Do they have good sleep habits? Um, you know, sometimes stress is a huge factor in not being able to sleep well. And that may be talking more about stress management. Um, maybe, you know, again, those good sleep habits where they're you know, not being on their technology and on their screens right before bed, or they're taking a warm bath or having some warm tea, you know, things that can help set the stage for better sleep. Um, I know that women going through menopause tend to struggle with sleep issues, and that's, you know, a hormonal imbalance. So they may need to speak to their physician about figuring that aspect out. But we just want to help our patients understand that these over-the-counter medications long-term are not a good, healthy situation. Yes, they are common. Yes, they are normal. Yes, they are all over our shelves, they are, but they are not truly helping our patients to be healthy in the long term. Hey, Bulletproof Hygiene listeners. We have some big, exciting news. We are proud to announce that our 2022 summit is happening in Nashville, Tennessee, June 3rd and 4th. Come join us for a weekend of growth, learning, and collaboration. We'll be taking deep dives into team culture, leadership, hygiene systems, and patient care and education that bring fulfillment, career success, and practice profitability. This course has the potential to change the trajectory of your career and help you practice at the top of your game. If you missed us in 2021, trust us, you don't wanna miss this. Visit bulletproofsummit.com to get all the details and observe your spot. We can't wait to see you there. My next thing is high blood pressure. How many of our patients have high blood pressure? I'm I'm hoping and I'm just going to make the assumption that we as hygienists are all taking our patients' blood pressure. We definitely should be, um, especially when we know that in our practices that sometimes our anesthetics can elevate that blood pressure. We want to know what is normal for our patient, what their standard is, Um, because obviously that's the other issue is a lot of patients aren't getting regular physicals and checkups. They come to see us, but they may not go see their doctor for a regular physical. So when we take their blood pressure, that's that's somebody that's looking at it when otherwise it might not be being checked. And the high blood pressure is one of those things that's easy to go undiagnosed. It doesn't often cause some problems until it's too far down the road. So hopefully we're all doing that. And I want to talk about it because hypertension is a major risk factor for heart disease and stroke. It is the leading and fit, it is the lead, or sorry, the fifth leading cause of death. High blood pressure should be treated earlier with lifestyle changes and in some patients with medication. Um, and there was a new... Um, They they kind of changed the standards. It used to be 140 over 90 was considered high blood pressure, and they bumped it down. It's now 130 over 80. And that was based on um, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association guidelines for the detection, prevention, management, and treatment of high blood pressure. According to the CDC, in 2019, more than half a million deaths in the United States had hypertension as a primary or contributing cause. Nearly half of adults in the United States have hypertension. And I'm going to say that again, because when we're talking about common and normal, nearly half of adults in the United States, it's 47% or 116 million, have hypertension, which is described as systolic blood pressure greater than 130 or diastolic greater than 80. In the U.S., hypertension affects around 40.8 million men and 44.9 million women, so tends to be higher in women. Only about one in four adults, which is 24%, with hypertension, have their condition under control. One in four adults have their condition under control. And I don't know about you guys, but I see this a lot in my chair. I see patients who are taking blood pressure medication and their blood pressure is still high. Um, About 50% of hypertension cases are associated with an unhealthy diet. That's probably not shocking to us, but that is something I think we need to be thinking about as we're talking to our patients about this. Um, I also feel like this is really a sensitive subject for patients. Um, Patients seem to be very defensive about their blood pressure. I'll take it and, you know, they'll say, "Um, yeah, I I just had some coffee on my way here or I'm, I'm, you know, I rushed to get here or I'm really stressed out and it's just interesting how people can be very defensive about that. And, um, so I always say, yeah, yeah, no worries. Why don't, you know, why don't we give it a few minutes, let you relax. I'll, you know, kind of lean you back in the chair. I'll kind of get a look around and we'll just check it again later and see where it's at. And I will say, honestly, a lot of times that comes down a little bit, but still can be in the high range. And it just opens the door to have the conversation of, Hey, when's the last time you and your doctor kind of looked at this again? Um, and, and really have you guys talked about what's causing it versus just giving you a medication for it? You know, what's, what are, what are some of your other stats looking like as far as blood sugar and cholesterol? And what's your exercise level looking like? How, how's your diet been lately? You know, these are questions that sometimes feel uncomfortable to ask, but it really does come down to lifestyle habits for a lot of these patients. So we've got to be bold and able to, to have those conversations and ask those questions. Exact causes of high blood pressure are not always known, and Hypertension can be categorized into two types, Um, and each type has a different cause. So there's primary hypertension or essential hypertension, and this type of blood pressure usually takes many years to develop and is a result of lifestyle, environment, and age. Um, And, you know, that's more where we see the lifestyle, sedentary, you know, poor diet, stress, you know, more commonly after the age of 50. And then we have secondary hypertension, which is high blood pressure caused due to health problems or certain medications. And family history may increase, you know, genetics may increase the risk for this, um, high salt intake or salt sensitivity, smoking, over being overweight or obese, lack of physical activity, too much alcohol consumption, stress. Um, and then factors which may cause sedentary hyper, hypertension include diabetes kidney problems, sleep apnea, thyroid or adrenal gland problems, and birth control pills. So after a prolonged period, untreated high blood pressure can cause heart disease and related complications such as heart attack, stroke, and heart failure. And other complications can include fluid buildup in the lungs, vision loss, kidney damage, erectile dysfunction, and memory loss. So the best way to prevent prevention is to maintain a healthy weight. Get regular exercise that increases our circulation, reduce salt intake, learn to manage tension or stress and take a well-balanced diet rich in calcium, potassium and magnesium. So, again, us being able to ask some lifestyle questions and, and ask what's going on and um, not in a you know, incriminating way or a judgment way, but just, hey, you know, I know that high blood pressure really sets you up for some long term health issues, heart attack, stroke risk, um, you know, memory loss, kidney damage. These are, these are not fun things. And, and you you come to see me for prevention. And I know you think that I'm come that I'm face I'm dealing with your oral prevention and I am, but I've got to look at your whole body because it all fits together. So I want to talk a little bit about lifestyle for you. Let's, and, and I say to patients, you know, I'm not here to revamp your whole life, but let's just talk about some small strategies, some small steps you can take now That are going to lead to big changes in the future and maybe we can just build upon these whenever i see you and we can celebrate those wins and track those um you know i think just having people to support them that aren't being judgmental and give suggestions and celebrate their wins is huge in helping people to get healthy the next area is high cholesterol and according to the national heart lung and blood institute A person's first cholesterol screening should occur between the ages of 9 and 11 and then be repeated every five years after that. The NHLBI recommends that cholesterol screenings occur every one to two years for men ages 45 to 65 and for women ages 55 to 65. People over 65 should receive cholesterol tests annually. The CDC says 95 million U.S. adults age 20 or older have total cholesterol levels greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter. Nearly 29 million adult Americans have total cholesterol levels higher than 240, and 2.7% 2. of U.S. children and adolescents ages 6 to 19 have high total cholesterol. So again, very, very common unfortunately very normal, not healthy. The causes of cholesterol, and we know that cholesterol is a soft fatty, fatty substance found in the body's cells, and it helps form certain hormones and other necessary substances. So we need cholesterol. It can be a good thing, but too much causes health problems. Hypercholesteremia could be caused due to various reasons. Things like controllable flat factors that increase risk that includes uh, that increase risks include things like obviously diet consumptions of food, high in saturated fats, lack of exercise and physical activity, stress and hormones. Um, the physiologic hormone called cortisol, for example, increases low density cholesterol levels, obesity or overweight, smoking. And then factors that cannot be controlled to lower the risk of developing high cholesterol include genetics, because we, you know, we know that genetics play a huge role in cholesterol retention. Um, And then side effects of certain medications can drive it and other medical conditions such as diabetes and high blood pressure. Medical conditions that can cause unhealthy cholesterol levels include chronic kidney disease, HIV, AIDS hypothyroidism, lupus, and diabetes. And cholesterol levels can also be worsened by some types of medications for things like acne, cancer, high blood pressure, HIV AIDS, irregular heart rhythms, and organ transplants. And if uncontrolled, it may lead to increased risk of artherosclerosis arth- arth- or deposition of cholesterol in the walls of arteries. Reduce blood flow to the heart and brain due to atherosclerosis, heart disease, including heart attack and stroke. So, again, high cholesterol is unfortunately very normal. And it's something that I think we need to pay a lot of attention to in our chairs. Sorry, I needed a sip. Um, Because there's a big correlation between cholesterol being stored in the arteries and the inflammatory process that periodontal disease and gingivitis can drive into the artery walls. We know those pathogens have the capability of setting up within those leaky artery walls and creating heat and inflammation, just like they do in the gum tissue. And that heats up those, that cholesterol, which causes it to burst out into the artery. And if it blocks the artery, that is where a heart attack happens. And if it gets carried away and taken, that clot gets taken to the brain, that is where we can see stroke. So I like to talk to my patients about that. And in that simple fashion that I just did about why cholesterol concerns me in a patient who has inflammation in their mouth and how that all correlates. So that's just a quick way that I like to explain it to patients. If if you want to steal it, go for it. Um, The next topic is insulin resistance and diabetes. And we know this is so, so prevalent. Um, Again, very normal, very common, not healthy. The CDC uh, says that 37.3 million people have diabetes. Um, That is 11.3% of the U.S. population. 28.7 million of those people have been diagnosed and 8.5 million have not been diagnosed. That's 8.5 million people walking around with diabetes, and they have no idea. And then we look at prediabetes, because we know that always comes first. Um, 96 million people aged 18 years or older have prediabetes. That is 38% of the U.S. adult population. So 38% have pre-diabetes and 11% have diabetes. These numbers are pretty staggering to me. Patients, people 65 years and older have, there's two, 26.4 million people in that age range um, that have diabetes. And then 48% of that same age range, 65 and older, that have pre-diabetes. So we know in our chairs, you know, a lot of our patients will come to us saying, you know, I'm diabetic or I've been, you know, I've uh, been diagnosed with insulin resistance or prediabetes, and we know that the very common test for that is the A1C. Um, also known as the hemoglobin A1c or HbA1c test. And it's just a simple blood test that measures uh, patient's average blood sugar levels over the past three months. And it's one of the commonly used tests to diagnose both prediabetes and diabetes. And it's also the main test to help a patient um, manage their diabetes. So higher one higher A1c levels are obviously linked to diabetic complications Um, So maintaining your individual A1C is really important. And we know that normal, the normal level is 5.7% or below. um, Or I should say below 5.7% because prediabetes ranges from 5.7 to 6.4. And then diabetes is 6.5 or above. So We know that it's, I think it's really important to ask patients. I almost feel like there's some credibility when you say, you know, when a patient says I'm diabetic and you say, what was your last A1C? And they look at you like, oh, oh, you know, you know how this works. Okay. (laughs) But I think it, again, also creates that ability to whenever you see them for their visits, like, hey, what was your last A1C? And you celebrate with them when they're managing that. And it, it motivates them. And I have patients now that come in and tell me before I even ask, hey, my last A1C, I'm, you know, I'm I'm at a six. And you know, they're super excited about that. So I think that again, asking that question is really, really important and just knowing where they're at. Again, because we know how prevalent diabetes is with periodontal disease and that bi-directional disease. So we've got to be talking about that. But recent research has found that is we know this now possible to reverse type two diabetes and prediabetes and as well as insulin resistance. When it comes to diet and diabetes management, the key is to control blood sugar levels, reduce inflammation and oxidative damage, and to improve liver detoxification. Achieving each of these is the best way to reverse both diabetes and insulin resistance. And we know that to do this, you need to focus on a diet that is full of fiber, rich in fruits and vegetables, and low in starches and sugars. We know our body converts starches to sugars in the bloodstream. Fiber helps to slow digestion, which helps control sugar absorption and blood glucose levels. So this is a must for any diet, but especially our patients who are dealing with insulin resistance, prediabetes or diabetes. Um, Fruits and vegetables, as we know, are high in antioxidants and anti-inflammatory compounds, which protect against oxidative stress, damage, and inflammation. And you also want to make sure that they include foods that contain healthy fats like omega-3 fatty acids and foods that help to detoxify the body. Obviously, we know that regular physical activity is essential for insulin sensitivity and regulation. By improving circulation and reducing fat storage, exercise helps to improve sugar metabolism and reduce diabetes and its complications. Um, and they have found really that all you need is to do is a good 30 minutes of walking each day that will help reduce blood sugar levels. And then obviously we know that more vigorous, vigorous exercise can actually reverse insulin resistance and diabetes. Things like interval training um, it's a great way to improve metabolism and get better control over blood sugar. Stress increases inflammation, we know this very, very well, um, throughout our body by way of excess production of the hormone cortisol. It also promotes weight gain, and inflammation and excess weight contribute to insulin resistance, which can ultimately lead to diabetes. Exercise will help combat stress, but there are additional things that patients can try, things like regular meditation, mindfulness, deep breathing exercises, yoga, Therapy is a great thing, Um, but we want to help our patients find more relaxation so that they can reduce inflammation and obviously be at less risk. And then obviously in our lane, we want to make sure that we are not compounding their issues with um, inflammation that's stemming from the mouth and they're having more trouble controlling their blood sugar because of active disease. So I know we're talking about that. Um, Next, I want to talk about arthritis. Arthritis has been the most frequently reported main cause of disability among U.S. adults for more than 15 years. And about 1 in 14 adults, it's 23.7%, or about 58.5 million people have doctor-diagnosed arthritis. So again, 1 in 4 adults, it's common. It's pretty normal. It's not healthy. And the biggest distinction to make um, for arthritis, there's actually two types. There's um, wear and tear type, which is non-inflammatory, such as osteoarthritis. Then there's autoimmune and inflammatory, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and other types. And then there's inflammatory, but not autoimmune, like gout. So we know that arthritis is caused by various reasons. Like we just said, wear and tear, of cartilage and joints. Um, there's metabolic abnormalities. This is an imbalance of many chemical substances in the body. There's infection, whether it be bacterial or viral. There's autoimmune disease where the body mistakenly fights its own cells and within the joints. Um, we know that diet can have a huge impact on arthritis symptoms. Excess body weight puts extra strain on arthritic joints. Even losing small amounts of weight can give you some relief. So trying to stay active and work towards losing extra weight. Um, an anti-inflammatory diet is, I'm going to argue, the only way to eat um, if you're trying to battle arthritis. Because, and, and I'll say this, sugar, sugar, sugar is so, so toxic for arthritis arthritis is toxic for all of us in general, but it creates a lot of inflammation within our, our body. So you want to focus on getting a lot of good antioxidants in our fruits and vegetables. Again, good fiber, omega-3 fatty acids, prebiotics, probiotics, and avoiding sugar. Um, for those patients that have gout or food allergies, um, you know, obviously they have dietary needs beyond just considering inflammation, but uh, for gout patients, they need to avoid purines that lead to uric acid acid crystals in your joints, so they need to avoid things like alcohol and non-alcoholic beer, high fructose corn syrup found in soda and many packaged foods, gravy, organ meat and red meat, and seafood, including fish and shellfish, can all contribute to arthritis. And again, because periodontal disease is a chronic inflammatory condition, and PG, um, our Porphyramonis gingivalis has been shown to initiate inflammation in the joints once exposed to the bloodstream. Um, So we know that controlling periodontal disease is huge in the fight against arthritis. And um, I know we did a previous podcast about arthritis. So if you want more stats and details on that, check it out. But um, again, really, really common. And we see a lot of this. My last area is pregnancy gingivitis. And this stat kind of blew me away, even though I know, again, we've done a podcast on pregnancy too. I think it was episode 30, but um, we gave a lot of information, but the CDC says nearly 60 to 75% of pregnant women have gingivitis. 60 to 75% of pregnant women have gingivitis. That's crazy to me. So we know that inflammation, that, that gingivitis inflammation is aggravated by the changing hormones during pregnancy. Um, And we know, but the scary thing is, we know that when you initiate basically those hormones allow the body to respond more aggressively to the pathogens that are there. And we know that periodontitis has also been associated with poor pregnancy outcomes. So preterm low birth weight, fetal death, um, high blood pressure in pregnancy, a lot of what's happening in the oral environment can help drive this. And in fact, there's many studies that link Fusobacterium nucleatum to these outcomes. Um, but with pregnancy gingivitis being so common, I think we absolutely have to step into our role within this opportunity and educate. And to me, employ salivary diagnostics in these cases. If you don't test anyone else, to me, the pregnant our pregnant patients are the most absolutely critical patients to do testing on because I feel like if we've got that FN hanging out in there, I don't want to get in there and disrupt that and get that going in the bloodstream even stronger and heavier because I know directly where it's going. So I'm going to empower all of us. If you haven't started salivary testing yet, please do so for the health of your patients. Um, This is the latest and greatest tool we have to be able to truly know what is causing and driving disease in the mouth not just looking at the symptoms. So um, I'm going to empower us all to do that. I think that's where our, uh, our profession is heading. So I'm not diving really deep into the stats for periodontal disease or how many of our patients see bleeding when they brush or floss. I'm, you know, we unfortunately all know how common that and prevalent that is. And again, it should be our mission to help our patients understand that, though un- that unfortunately it is normal and it is common but it is not healthy. So um, another aspect that I'm not really diving in deep into today, but we're going to leave for another podcast because I definitely see this coming soon is the commonality of our very poor westernized diet that seems to be driving our disease in this country. So many of these conditions and issues that we talked about today can be solved significantly or improved drastically by patients choosing to eat based off nutrition versus convenience or pleasure the amounts of sugars chemicals and hydrogenated oils in our food supply is abhorrent and a direct link to the disease rates that we face so nutrition and nutritional counseling is definitely a direction i see our profession headed to get to root cause treatment so look for a future podcast coming your way on that from us for sure but in the interim, I would love to hear how you as listeners are tackling these topics with your patients, um, because some of these do feel like touchy subjects. You know, it, it's hard to talk to an obese patient about their obesity and how that can drive issues, because that can be a very emotional topic. And that can be, um, you know, sometimes patients have a lot of shame associated with that. Um, you know, they feel like they've been judged a lot in their lives. So it's sometimes hard to dive into that. Um you know, sometimes a lot of people have a lot of emotional stuff and they got a lot of stress going on. And, and, you know, I always say to patients, I wish I had a magic wand and I could just take this from you. But what I can do is help us create some, some strategies or some small steps to walk through these together and just figure out something small that you can do today that will have an impact for the future. And what I know is a lot of you listening have some really great ways of doing this, and I would love to learn from you. So if you haven't already, please come join us on our Mighty Network community. Um, it's a free app. You just download Mighty Networks on your um phone, your smartphone, and search Bulletproof Hygiene and and come join the community. Share what you're doing and how you're winning. Ask questions. Um, Talk to me. Please come talk to me about nutrition because um, I, I see that as huge in our tools against all the disease that's going on around us. So I want to say good luck to all of you this week as you now go out and start thinking, gosh, this really is normal. I am seeing this all the time. Um, And let's help our patients understand that normal isn't necessarily healthy, but let's flip the paradigm and let's make healthy the norm. Everybody have a great week and we'll see you next week. Bye bye